The Diesel Performance Podcast contains explicit language. Thank you for joining us again. This is Paul Wilson. And I'm Danny Voss. And you're listening to the Diesel Performance Podcast. Danny, twin turbo LML DPF on. Who would have thought? Man, what a cool episode. We started with the one charger DPF on. Now we're going to two chargers with the DPF on. We're making uh, some series, picking up some ground here. Absolutely. Uh, Folks, if you have not listened to it already, make sure you jump on and download the LML Twin Turbo DPF on episode. We had Matt out here. We had Austin out here from Diesel Diesel Tech Tech. Magazine. Uh, Great guys, great truck. That's going to be a really fun project to be involved on. All right, future episodes. Do, do, do. We got the call-out challenge. Yeah, Danny's been working on that one, so we're going to have some more information. Obviously, a huge announcement here recently. Uh, call-out challenge is going to be hosted in Indianapolis, right down the street from Danny and I. Huge deal. Like four hours down the street, but down the street. Uh, so we're really excited about that. Obviously, Calibrated sounding like they're going to have a truck out there at this one. Truck Buyer's Guide 2.0. We're going to be getting balls deep into that topic. I can't wait to talk to the... Uh, special guests we'll have and also um tell you guys what we've learned in the past year since the last one absolutely absolutely today though we have a very special guest uh the operator of the very well-known mechanical mule tom tom how's it going today uh, pretty good excellent well thank you for joining us we definitely appreciate you taking some time out of destroying some trucks to come and uh, sit on the phone and talk with us my pleasure <laughs> Well, we always ask me how many how many dry sets we're gonna break that day, but it's it's getting less all the time. It's not as much fun. (laughs) They're building them better and better. It's all your fault. Yep, they're learning. You guys are learning. He's got a tally marker in the sled of how many drive shafts he's taken out this season. <laughs> no, I was always going to make like, the, like a fire pilot, you know, get out and stick a broken drive shaft in the side of my cab, and I got done breaking one, but I never did do that. I might, <laughs> might offend some people. <laughs> I could see somebody getting butthurt over it, like, you know. Yeah. yeah. But still. Of course, yeah. with some guys, it's a trophy when they get done doing that. They, they, yeah. they get out and show it to the crowd, and the Pulled crowd cheers. It's awesome. So. <laughs> That's kind of the attitude you got to have sled pulling. Absolutely. Yep. Well, Tom, I'll tell you what, we start off every show by asking our guests, uh, how'd you get started in diesel performance? Oh, well, I started out, you know, just a farmer, and I started tractor pulling back in the day. I uh, I had an Allison modified at the end of my career until the drought of 88 came along. And then I just went back into pulling and couldn't afford, you know, justify the costs for what you could win. And I finally buying a sled then, about 95, I believe I bought it. So you, you stopped sled pulling your own tractor, and we're yeah. like, you know what? The guy making all the money doing this is the guy with the sled. Well, the guy having fun is still pulling the tractor or the truck, but I couldn't justify the cost of what it would cost to build something I'd be satisfied to drive. You know, an antique wouldn't have done cut it. I had to go, you know, some speed and smoke or, you know, something, you know, fast, and I just I couldn't justify the cost, so I went to buy a sled. <laughs> so now I, I get lots of rides now instead of just that one. <laughs> but but I, but I do get paid every time. Now see there there's the something that no, nobody can say right is I get paid every time I go to the sled poles. Yep, that's that's the main thing. <laughs> Even the clean sweep doesn't get paid every time, Paul. <laughs> yeah, pretty close though. Hey, so you're going to be at our event this weekend, right? You're going to be uh, at Paw Paw and Mendota, right? Yes. Gotcha. And for people listening, that'll actually have already had happened. So make sure to check out Facebook and see how Danny did against the mechanical mule once again. Yeah, I remember the first time I was on that sled this year in Leaf River. 
on the mechanical mule, and there's a reason why they call it the mule, boy. It'll kick you. <laughs> yeah. You can run for a while, but it's going to get you eventually. <laughs> so tell us about the mule and a little bit of the history. What kind of, I mean, how did it start? I mean, is it brand new? Did you buy it? Did you build it? Uh, I bought it from a guy out in Waverly, Iowa. It's actually built clear back in 78, the original. Actually, the original mule was built in 76 or 7, and he was a tractor puller, and that's back in the day where you stepped on the stone boat going by. And he had a 4020 scooped up pretty good, and he, somebody got hurt trying to step on there at the speed they were going. So he went home and, and built, uh, built a mechanical transfer machine just, you know, for safety reasons. He got in the business, and I went up buy it from him. Oh, 95 or 6 is when I bought it. But all the stuff of the sled I bought now today is the uh, the two I-beams, the box rolls down, the bottom of the box. That's all the stuff of the original sled. Oh, wow. I've, I've rebuilt every inch of it. Is that something that you have to do yourself? I'd imagine that there's not really any experts on building sled poles. Oh, you you can buy a brand new sled from a few different guys, but they're all basically a, a Von Bauer sled or a uh, Dave Hager sled copy. Okay. Um, Brad Crutchin in Wisconsin's actually built. Hey, I was going to build a third one right here now. It is kind of a combination of both of them, I would say. But for the most part, back in the day, everybody just built their own sled, used their ideas, and just started building. And they've evolved into what they are now, basically. Are there any rules or requirements on sleds to try to keep them comparable to each other? Uh, I belong to uh, NASOA, the North American Sled Owners Association, and they have rules and specifications you got to build a sled to, depending on what classification you build your sled for. You know, they go from anywhere from an antique sled or mini rod sled clear up to the uh, unlimited modified sleds. Okay, I guess that's good. That's and, always um, a question I have when right. I go to polls is. When you see, especially when they have two sleds out there and you're pulling two lanes at a time, mm-hmm. you always kind of wonder, well, like, is this sled tougher than the one next to it? Or is it just, we got a better class of trucks or, you know? Yeah, it just depends how the sled's set for the class you took, too. So how often like, do how often do people uh, rent your sled per year, you think? Oh, I do 30, well, 40-some shows this year, as many as 50. And that's probably somewhere around 35 different locations because some of them are a two-day event or a two-show the same day thing like like Mendoza this weekend. We pull farmers and antiques in the morning, then that night we do the ISP show. Is this your full-time gig, Tom? Uh, I farm, too. Oh, okay. What do you farm? This is, uh, I, only, I only farm about 300 acres, and Dad's got another 400 probably, so together we farm seven to 800 acres between us. Gotcha. gotcha. But that's not enough to be a full-time full-time uh, job, so I got the pulling sled to supplement my, my farming, I guess you'd say. <laughs> what a cool side gig. That beats me washing yeah. w- washing windows on the weekends. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> asks how, my ho- how much fun I had in my hobby that weekend. It's like, it's not a hobby. This is a business. <laughs> uh, I'm not the first guy there and the last guy to leave and get my butt chewed once in a while for doing something wrong to call it a hobby. Gotcha. It's a business. <laughs> Makes sense. Well, I'll tell you what, right after we do a quick commercial break, I want you to tell us a little bit about the best carnage carnage you have ever witnessed out on the track. The Diesel Performance Podcast is brought to you by Calibrated Power Solutions, home of DuramaxTuner.com, a diesel engine and transmission calibration company dedicated to the philosophy of stealth, as explained by DT's founder-owner, Nick Pregnance. We get in this uh, mindset that in order to make power, we need a little bit of smoke. In order to make power, we need noise. In order to make sure that the truck is breathing well and has low EGTs, it has to sound a certain way. 
and what I'm here to push is the envelope on that, right? I want to push the envelope and tell you, you don't have to blow smoke. You don't have to be any louder than stock. We can do it through proper turbo selection, through proper injection system selection, through proper calibration. You know, let's challenge the status quo as far as noise pollution. This is your daily driver truck. You don't want it to be obnoxious. You just want a good running truck that drives well and has good performance. If you'd like to learn more, give us a call, 815-568-7920. That's 815-568-7920. All right, and we're back. And I was just asking a little bit about the some of the best carnage you've ever seen as uh, you're actually operating the sled. Can you think of any stories for us? Oh, I've had a few guys bounce off the walls. That's always fun, cement block or a wall or something. Wait a minute, you mean That's to the far bad. left or right of the track? Yeah, I mean, you'll you'll think they're going to correct, and pretty soon it's like, no, they're not going to correct in time. And yeah. so they'll they'll hit the cement barrier, and then they use that means I get to hit it too. Or What the fuck do you uh, mean they hit the cement well, barrier? You're uh, going left or right at 30 uh, miles an hour. How did you not see break. it coming? Oh, you could break a front they end just, part? They think they're going to turn, and they, and they don't. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, then at the last second, you, you find, oh, I can kill them. See, I can shut them off from my seat. And sometimes the guy just freezes, you know, he just like, oh no, and he doesn't let off. And, and then sometimes they, if they do let off, well then if they start crashing, banging, they can't help but get rid of that throttle and they keep shoving it back forward, so you keep trying to go. And So I'm, I'm along not just for, to bring the sled back to the start line, I'm there for safety reasons too. Right. You know, I kind of know when somebody's gotten too far out of control or there's just, it's just time to stop them, it's getting dangerous, we're headed for the crowd or... They've just, they simply lost complete control. Or, well, back in the day, the diesels, they used to, uh, oh, did some of their, some of the rack, or it would, it would just rev wide open. Yeah, you'd see call them, it you'd run away. The throttle back, and uh, it just run away, and they couldn't shut it off. You know, the throttle's off, they won't shut off, and I'd just shut their air off to them. Oh, wow. So I've had to do that a few times over my career. Was it, and, I can't uh, even imagine being sitting up in that sled. You're a good 10 feet off the ground. You're. 40, 50 feet behind the truck, and then you have mm-hmm. to decide, like, am I, okay, do I shut off the air now? Because all of these guys run until the truck looks like it breaks. I mean, breaking parts at a sled pulls is no big deal. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, when I bought the sled, the guy came out and inspected it. We're inspected every year by a sled inspector, make sure everything's up, you know, specs are supposed to be at. And my first year, he was out here talking to me. He said, now, someday when you kill somebody and they think you shouldn't have, just ask them, would you prefer I be too late next time? <laughs> and uh, that usually ends the conversation right there. Hit him between you know, the if eyes. I was too soon, we can, you can always rehook. But if I'm too late, it could be really bad. Yeah, no so, kidding. From, from from my judgment, I thought it was time. Yeah. And as a and as a rule, everybody's pretty happy that you shut them down. No, for sure. I can't yeah. see too many guys getting mad about you saving their truck. You, you know, I, yeah. I understand what you mean, getting butthurt over a few feet. But honestly, if yeah. you're at the point of getting shut down, you didn't have much left in the run anyways. No, if you're that far out of shape, you're not going to win the class anyway. You're on the brakes too hard. Well, like a tractor, he's on the brakes. If a truck is going that much sideways, you know, he's losing ground anyway trying to correct it. So right, they weren't going to win anyway. Okay. Okay. As a polar, I hear other people talking in the pits, of course, after the event. And they're like, man, every time I pull on the Terminator or the Viper or whatever sled that we're hooking that night to – they'll say, oh, I think that sled operator hates me and hangs the brakes on extra early. I mean, is that even possible? Yeah. Have you ever uh, been accused of anything like that in your career? Of oh, Well, not to my face. <laughs> but, but, I mean, I mean all, the, all the NASL, the approved sleds, 
uh, all controls, everything's outside the cab as far as the, the speed the box goes up, the pan trips, the push down trip. Uh, everything is done out mechanically outside or you know set outside. All we've got in there is a kill button, a brake handle, and some of us can drop our pan or apply push down if we have to from the cab for, for emergency reasons. And if that happens, the red lights turn on. You know, if you hit the brake lights, the red lights come on from the cab. If you drop the pan, the green light goes. You know, there's there's it's supposed to be set up so people know you did something wrong in the cab. Right. So I'm I'm just there to ride along. So I, yeah, there's there's nobody that you favor or whatever sitting back there. So real quick, and I think maybe for some of our more kind of just new to the sport listeners, can you explain a little bit about how the sled works? Basically, I got, you know, what class I'm running, what they weigh. I pick what gear I run with the box up in, how fast. I probably got 12 different choices from antiques up to a pro stock tractor setting. Then how much weight it takes to get them loaded down once you get them going fast. And then, so once you get the gear, you decide, you know, how much weight and how long do you hold the pan up to let them get rolling. And then whenever you drop the pan, you know, I can drop it from 100 feet to 250 feet when I let the pan fall on the ground, which that's when it starts pulling a little harder. And I also have push down at the end that goes off, and I can regulate how hard I push down on somebody. Uh, some of your big sleds, they don't regulate that. They just push with all they got. Well, I'll pull you out of the seat. Right. I'll regulate mine so I don't I don't want to kill their motor, but I want to get them stopped, you know, 300 to 320 feet. Why and is then it? I also got... And I also got to guess how well you're going to hook to the track, too, versus how well I'm going to the track we're on for that day. Okay, it, right. and that might be a little bit of insight to my next question there, Tom. Why do I always see you guys dicking around so much with adjusting the weight? How many times have you operated the sled at these tracks? you got to know how much weight it takes. Why Why am I always sitting around as a spectator waiting for you guys to get the weight right? Uh, well, because every track's different. Conditions. I mean... I might run the, the same classes. And they might, well, like some classes, they only put two, three hundred pounds difference in the tractor or the truck when they come back. It could be totally different the second time around just because the track dried out, the sun went down, the moisture came up. I mean, it, it changes constantly. Okay, that actually makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm much less you know, annoyed you know, with the, you guys right now. You know, <laughs> you know how, how wet the you know if it's a wet year, the track is too wet, or they overwater the track, the track is too dry. You know, it all matters how well you hook up to it and how well I hook up to it to stop at the other end. Okay. That, that actually makes a ton of yeah. sense. Thank you. Because the track yeah. will change, well, yeah, like Tom you know, said. It's not the same setting every time I hook on the same class. Yeah, I mean, and you, you mean, can see where spectators are coming exactly from. The same. Right. Well, I guess that's my next question here. So about how much variance is there between classes and weight? You, is it really just two or 300 pounds between, like, work stock and 2.6? Or is it a couple oh, thousand wow. pounds? No, it's a lot different. Well, actual weight in the box is the same for me because i got different gearing I can use. But, like, you know, the, the work stock, I will run my one of my slower gears. The box might top out about 300 feet, but I'll hold the pan to 220 to 40 feet for them. And I may use push down. I may not. Just get them stopped. Okay. And we get up and get to the guys with bigger turbos and stuff. You might jump it up one gear, which is 10 to 15 feet faster. You might drop the pan a little quicker on them, more push down. Just just depends on the vehicle you're hooking to. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so when I come up in a class, that whole class runs the same setting. And then yeah. as you go to the next class, then the sled gets reset for just that class, and everybody yeah. in the class runs that same setting again. Yeah, the first polar yep. will set the hook. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, if, if, we like, if we like the setting of the sled, you know, if I like it and the judge likes it, then that's, that's the setting for the whole class. There's no change in it during the class. Gotcha. How do you think the mechanical mule compares to other sleds? 
oh, it's a lot older, but this guy, I got probably more adjustments than most guys have with my air hold up and my air push down. And then most guys, the new sled's only got I, four or five gears they can choose from, where I've got you know a dozen of them I can pick out of. Oh wow! So I don't have I don't change weight near as much as they do. You know I can I can run a antique tractor and then I can come back and hook onto a oh like the too hot to farm class or your or well your what you call your stock diesels which aren't stock obviously. So, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking same, about. Yeah, but it's the same weight in the box. It's okay. just how how fast I can put it up there, how long I'll let you run before I drop the pan, and how hard I push on the other end stock. Gotcha. A lot of guys always or ask lot, me. The newer sleds, they'll have to put weight in, take it out, or move it around in the box so it doesn't transfer as much forward. It might be in the box, but it'd be in the back of the box, so it actually transfers less of it. Right. That's really interesting. You'd think it would have went the other way, right? You would have thought the older sleds had less gears and moved the weight around all the time, and the newer sleds would have more yeah. gears and less adjustments. No. But it seems like uh, that older technology seems to be more advanced. Yeah, well, I mean, well, when Hager started building his, what the sleds are today, basically, he only had, he didn't have any gears. He had just, he had the two-speed trans, two-speed rear end, maybe. So he had two choices. So he just had to deal with weight and when he when he when things trip gotcha so you mean green sled's still that way he's got he's got a fast gear and a slow gear basically and he does it all with weight and where he starts the box see i can move the box forward to make it get there faster too right or you start far back and you know so you can you can adjust it just in that a little bit you know where the box starts out at okay what is the but overall the what is the overall weight of the mule? Everybody always wants to know what is that thing, thirty thousand, twenty thousand pounds? I, I can honestly tell you today what it weighs, I went weigh it this morning. First time ever. Uh when I'm set up for you guys, I'm weighing just shy of forty thousand pounds total weight. The sled weighs back there. Forty thousand. Whew, that yep, just voided your it, warranty. <laughs> you towed yeah. over forty thousand gross pounds. <laughs> yeah. But the the pan weight is probably Two thousand to twenty five hundred pounds of actual weight sitting on the ground. The rest is on wheels. Oh, and and you guys will carry my pan for probably fifty feet before I over overcome your lift off your drawbar to get my pan back on the ground. So like you know, so it's really it's just a great big wagon back to your pulling, taking off with. Gotcha. Because I mean, I, I I can pull four thousand pound antiques with the same amount of weight in it as you guys are pulling, and right. they get me going. Just changing up the rest of those settings on there. Yep. You know, as long as the track's good and firm, you know, if they can get me rolling, they can take off with me. Okay. What do you, what do you see in the future for sled pulling? What do you think is the next big thing to hit sled pulling? As far as the sled goes? Yeah. Oh, I don't see too much difference to what we're doing now. It hasn't changed that much, really, from back in the 70s. <laughs> other than just how hard they, you know, how much weight they can carry, how hard they can push down on you at the other end. Okay. You know, there's... I mean, they talk about computerized sleds and stuff down the road, but all that would be for it for safety. You know, something didn't do what it was supposed to, it would, it would shut things down automatically for you instead of waiting for, the, for me to think about it. Right. I can't but, see yeah, them I mean, automating it too much beyond this. Weight. Yeah. No, I hear you. So as far as owning this thing and operating it, what kind of maintenance uh, do you have to do to this thing to keep it in tip-top shape and making it look as good as it does when you take it out? Uh, it takes a terrible beating every week. I can tell you that. I mean, it it gets, just gets beat on terrible at at some places, depending on the track conditions. But 
Oh, the, the pan itself, there's there's wear plates on that you change out. They almost make it two years, the ones in the front. Uh, yeah, go in there and cut them off, weld new ones on every once in a while. The bars in the back will last quite a bit longer, but you got to rebuild them every once in a while. And then just maintaining bearings and clutch, you know, clutches and just, you know, just checking stuff and make sure everything's okay and adjusting. Gotcha. Not, not terrible, I guess. I hear you. Well, I'll tell you what, Tom, if anybody wants to get a hold of you and ask you more questions about the sled, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? No, uh, my cell phone, but I hate to get that out, I suppose. <laughs> how do customers get tell, tell them how to contact customers me. find you? Yeah, have them contact me, and I'll get a hold of uh, Tom yeah, for them. Yeah. You bet. If you want to rent the sled for the weekend for yeah, a bachelor rent, party. Yeah, if you want to rent it, call me. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to rent it, call, call Tom, but yeah, you have to cut a hold of Danny to get Tom's there's number. There's not a lot of openings in the summer that, you know, to be filled yet, but there's always there's a hole here and there once in a while you can get a inertia put into. There you go. I'll broker it out for you. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us. Okay. Thanks for talking to me. Not a problem. This has been Paul Wilson. And I'm Danny Voss. Thanks for listening. Calibrated Power Solutions, the leading North American developer of clean diesel power and home of DuramaxTuner.com, is the proud sponsor of the Diesel Performance Podcast. Calibrated Power develops emissions equipped tunes for a wide variety of diesel powertrains, including the Duramax, Cummins, Jeep, John Deere, and many more. For more information and the best customer service in the industry, check out CalibratedPower.com or call 815-568-7920. That's 815-568-7920. To reach out to the Diesel Performance Podcast, send us a message through Facebook or email paul at duramaxtuner.com or danny at duramaxtuner.com. He's got a tally marker in the sled of how many drive shafts he's taken out this season. <laughs> no, I was always going to make like a, like a fire pilot, you know, get out and stick a broken drive shaft in the side of my cab, and I got done breaking one, but I never did do that. I might, <laughs> might offend some people. <laughs> I could see somebody getting butthurt over it, like, you know. Yeah. yeah. But still. Of course, like, with some guys, it's a trophy when they get done doing that. They, they, yeah. they get out and show it to the crowd, and the Hold crowd cheers. It's awesome. So. <laughs>